Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Thank you again, as always, to our Patreon subscribers. We really, really appreciate your support. For less than the cost of a package of fresh socks, and I know this because I recently bought new socks, and socks have increased in price, you can hear us talk about more interesting engineering failures. That's five Canadian dollars per month, and our mini failure episodes are released every other Sunday on the opposite Sundays from our regular episodes. So if you're one of our lucky patrons, you get an episode from us every week. We also have a link to set up the mini failures in your regular podcast app so you don't have to flip back and forth between the Patreon app and your podcast app. We can get them all in one place. And we also have a list of all of the mini failures we've covered on our Patreon feed on our website if you want to check those out. And there's a link to the website in the show notes or you can just look up failureology.ca. So this week, really exciting news. The Failureology podcast is two whole years old. This is our pretty much our second birthday. But we're going to talk more about what two years means to us next week because I found a really cool news article that I wanted to talk about today. So we're going to take the news segment for our next episode and talk about all of the different things we've accomplished in the last year because of this podcast, which I have some really cool things to talk about and what we're hoping to do in in the next year going forward. So Stay tuned next episode for that. But for this episode, let's get into the news. So this week in engineering news, the world's first electric passenger plane took its first flight. So this article came from Popular Mechanics. You may have seen it on some of your other social media feeds or on other news sites. I know I've seen it on a couple different uh, websites. Uh, So this airplane, this uh, electric passenger plane, it's named Alice, and it's a battery-powered airplane. And it took off at 7.10 a.m. from Grant County International Airport, and it flew for eight minutes at 3,500 feet. So this is the first airplane that has been designed kind of from the ground up as an electric passenger airplane. There were some efforts a few years ago with Viking aircraft here in Canada where they put a whole bunch of batteries in a de Havilland uh, Beaver, um, kind of out on the West Coast, kind of same principle. The thing was crammed with batteries. It didn't fly for very long. I believe it was about a 15-minute flight. But this airplane, in the news article, Alice, this is the first electric passenger plane that's kind of been designed that way from the ground up. So the airport that it took off from Grant County International Airport, it's about 250 kilometers east of Seattle and about 50 kilometers east of Gorge Amphitheater. And this is a retired military facility with a really long runway that is great for testing this aircraft and really just in general for testing aircraft. Brian, have you ever been to the Gorge? I have not been to the Gorge. I have been to Seattle, though, but I haven't been to the Gorge. Have you been to the Gorge? I have been to the Gorge. I think it is probably one of the nicest music venues that I have ever been to. It's so beautiful. You, It's, it's completely outside. It's an outdoor amphitheater. And the stage is kind of at the bottom of the hill. So everyone's seated on the hill. Uh, not in chairs, of course, it's all just grass seating, but everyone has a good view of the stage. And then to the, well, when you're looking at the stage to the left, there's a river valley and then mountains on the other side. So it's just really, really nice. Similar to, uh, to Red Rocks Amphitheater in, uh, in Colorado. I'm not sure. The gorge is pretty popular. I, it's probably pretty close. 
It sounds like it's it, it sounds like it's pretty similar to that. I mean, they're they're both you know outdoor amphitheaters, which are which are great, and they have kind of great visual backgrounds. But I will put it on the list of of places to go when I'm when I'm in Washington State area next. So this plane it was designed for flying up to 250 miles or 400 kilometers and seating for up to nine passengers. So it would kind of fall in the in Canada it would fall in the regulations for air taxi service. So so 703. One of the challenges that they had to deal with, unsurprisingly, is the weight of the batteries that it takes to power this aircraft. So just for comparison, back to normal vehicles, road vehicles, a gas car weighs about 15% less than a similar electric model. And a lot of that weight, even though there's no engine in electric cars or a, a typical internal combustion engine, they have a lot of batteries and currently batteries are pretty heavy. Not surprisingly, heavy batteries, a little bit easier to deal with on the ground than they are in the air. So airplanes, they are supposed to fly. In order for them to fly, especially if they're electric power, they need batteries. The batteries are heavy. So it's it's a really difficult kind of feedback system where you got to find that right balance of how much power do you get for, for the weight of the batteries. It, it's a similar issue if any of you have played Kerbal Space Program or have any experience in launching rockets. Um, it's that trade-off between rocket fuel, the weight of the rocket fuel, and needing the rocket fuel to propel the aircraft, or the, propel the spacecraft out of the atmosphere. So in addition to Alice offering zero carbon emissions, it also offers a very quiet flight experience. And probably doesn't smell like jet fuel. I have That's an extra, that's extra on your ticket. It's $25 on your ticket if you want to smell like jet fuel. I've done a lot of flying recently, more than I wanted to. It feels like a lot. I feel like I'm living at the airport. Uh, but the smell is quite strong. Also, I've been flying on a few Dash 8s, which are very popular in Canada for those really short flights. And they are loud. I forgot how loud those are. The Q400 series, which is the most recent version of the Dash 8, um, they're actually quite quiet compared to the old 100 and 300 series of Dash 8. Out of all the Dash 8 series, the 100 series is my favorite Dash 8, but I'm also old. The Dash 8 is still substantially louder than a 787. This is this is true. I think part of it is that it's louder, but part of it is also that you're right next to the... I always end up right next to the propeller. There's not a lot of seats that aren't right next to the propellers either. Yeah, fair enough. So as far as Alice is concerned, I personally think this is just the start for electric airplanes. I know it only holds nine passengers and it can only travel 400 kilometers, but I mean, we've got to start somewhere. So I think this is a really good step in the right direction for airline travel. And hopefully the market will show that there's consumers for this type of plane and that will drive engineers and experts alike to continue to improve the batteries, make them lighter, make them smaller and improve the plane designs, which will give us longer ranges and more passenger capacity. So who knows, maybe in our lifetime, we'll fly on one of these on a regular commercial flight. All of these are technological advances in aviation. They have to start from somewhere. I think this is a great start for electric-powered aircraft. Um, when we look way back, you know, for the Wright Flyer, that was, I believe, a 12-second flight time. There was one person on that aircraft. You had to lie down in the aircraft, and then things sort of evolved to being able to carry one passenger and then two passengers. So starting at nine for electric aircraft, that's uh, that's actually pretty good. 
Yeah, and I did go down a rabbit hole and check out the website for Alice, which I will include a link to on the website for uh, this episode. And there is a couple, I think she has three different versions. There's a freight version that has no seats, obviously. It's just for packages. And then they have the nine-seater, but then they also have a private plane type uh, corporate plane that has six seats, I think, but you have quite a bit more room. So it's the same cabin size as the nine seater, but they're spaced out a little bit more and you get a lot more room, which I thought was pretty cool. So if you want to read more about Alice, check out the links on the webpage for this episode at failurology.ca. And like I mentioned, we'll have a link to the popular mechanics article as well as the website for Alice. Roberta Luongo's Bingo Bango Bingo Hall. If you've had a bad day, come dab your troubles away. Try it on for size. You could even win a prize. Don't let this beach ball of an opportunity pass you by. Find a Roberto Luongo's Bingo Bango Bingo Hall near you. Now on to this week's engineering failure, the Boeing 737 MAX. This one is one that's been on the list for a long time. I think we've had a f- quite a few people reach out and mention this one or ask us if we're going to do this one. And so today's the day we're, we're going to do it. I was in Ireland at the beginning of September speaking at a conference about failure and resilience, which was such a cool experience. And the 737 MAX is one of the failures that I talked about in my session. So I feel like I'm finally prepared for a plane episode after 63 episodes. I, I'm really comfortable talking about this one. Maybe not quite as much as Brian still, but I've come a long way since the very first plane episode I did, which was Air France Flight 447 in episode nine. So I'm pretty happy with myself uh, right now. Which I think, so the Air France 447 episode uh, that Nicole covered by herself in episode nine, I believe I'd suggested that when Nicole kind of first talked about starting that, that podcast. It was that one or it was one that was similar to it. But yeah, you definitely suggested a lot of plain ones. You suggested a lot of things for the podcast, which is why I asked you if you wanted to co-host with me. Originally, I was only supposed to be here for an episode or two. And here I am, more than a year later, still on this podcast, still co-hosting it. And we're talking about airplanes. The 737 MAX was a fourth generation 737 from Boeing. The aircraft was announced on August 30th, 2011, and it took its maiden flight on January 29th, 2016, with service commencing on May 22nd, 2017, with Melinda Air, which is a hybrid full-service carrier, an associate carrier of Lion Air Group, and a cooperative between Malaysia and Indonesia, which is how they named the airline. Uh, Mal-Indo is basically what it is. So the updated 737 model came with more efficient engines, some aerodynamic changes, some airframe modifications, which we'll talk about fairly extensively over this episode. And note that we said updated, which will be kind of a reoccurring theme uh, throughout this episode. So the the Boeing 737, if you've traveled anywhere around the world, um, definitely in North America, you've likely flown on a Boeing 737. They're fairly ubiquitous aircraft. They've been around for I mean, 40 plus years. They've gone through a number of design, you know, life cycle changes, um, you know, certainly some engine changes, um, you know, kind of throughout the design history. They've been operated in 
passenger and cargo service. They've been operated in a combined passenger freight role um, for a lot of places um, in northern Canada, which I think is really cool. That would be the 737-200 series combi. So it had, obviously, uh, there's a big freight door on it, so you can load um, big cargo containers into the front. And then it's also got a uh, modification on the nose gear. There's basically a skid that's be behind the nose gear, so that, that deflects some of the gravel that would typically go into the engine since the engines are carried under wing um, on the 737. So it's been around for a long time. But the Max series that we're talking about, it has been updated. So Boeing assumed quite correctly that the regulators uh, would be on board with basically updating the 737 type certificate. And the reason one of the large drivers for this was it costs a lot of money to certify a new airplane. It costs less money to basically just upgrade an airplane. And Boeing chose a path of upgrading the 737 largely because it was going to save them a lot of money on the certification side of things and they felt that there weren't substantial enough design changes to warrant a completely new type certificate. Which I follow that logic. They just executed the upgrade so poorly that they really just shot themselves in the foot. And we're going to get into that in a second. So before I go too much further, I do want to mention this at the top because I have gotten lots of questions about it before. So there were a few variations of the 737 MAX, which to me seem like different sizes that they come in. So there's the MAX 7, the MAX 8, 9, and the 10, which comes out next year. Yeah, and, and largely the, those are the differences between the series. There, There is some differences in, you know, engines and, and avionics, but largely the, you know, the 7, the 8, the 9, the 10, as the numbers get bigger, the aircraft get much longer. So the two major crashes that we're going to talk about today were MAX 8s, uh, but all of the 737 MAXs had the same issues. So for the purpose of this episode, we're just going to call the planes the 737 MAX because to me, they all were flawed. But the two specific crashes that everyone talks about and looks back on were in fact 8s. So we're going to get into the details of why in a little bit, but all of the 737 MAX 8 series and the MAX series they were grounded from March 2019 until November 2020. So almost two years of aircraft sitting on the ground. I know when I would go to various airports, there were 737 MAX 8s parked in a lot of places. Like this was this was a fairly large fleet. At that point in time, there were 387 aircraft that, that were part of this fleet. So it wasn't the first one or two that had rolled off the assembly line. Like these had been operating for you know a number of years. And lots of operators that, um, you know, had previously operated 737s or A320 series, you know, aircraft. So kind of the uh, the narrow body single aisle aircraft that you typically would take, you know, to various destinations throughout North America. They were operating the MAX-8. So this is a, a big amount of aircraft in their fleet that are parked that they now had to find solutions for. So at this point, the MAX series of aircraft, they'd operated um, over 500,000 flights. So... Again, there's been a substantial number of flights that have happened with this aircraft before this incident occurs. So the main issue with the 737 MAX is the MCAS system, which is the new control software that they put on board these planes. MCAS stands for Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System, and it was a flight stabilization program. And we've talked about flight stabilization programs before. They're not necessarily a problem when executed well this one was not 
Its intention was to compensate for excessive nose up or excessive pitch during takeoff. So what would happen to these planes is the nose would be a lot higher in relation to where the tail was on the plane. They would be kind of aimed up. So too high of a pitch during takeoff can result in an aerodynamic stall, which you definitely don't want when you're flying an airplane. And so the MCAS was intended to stabilize that and prevent the nose from going up too high. The nose up motion was caused by the engine placement and size. So the engines offered a 15% reduction in thrust fuel consumption, 20% lower carbon emissions, and 50% lower nitrogen oxide emissions, which were the upgrades that came with this upgraded model. But this new engine was about 400 kilograms heavier at 2,780 kilograms, and it was also about a foot or 300 millimeters larger than the previous engine. So because it was larger and it was heavier, they had to increase the the length or the I guess the height of the landing gear, but also place the engine higher and move more forward on the plane. So it met the required ground clearance. So essentially they had bigger engines, but they still want, tried to put them in the same spot. So they made a few other adjustments around the plane to make that happen. But it just changed, I guess, the center of gravity of the plane, and it, it just didn't fly as smooth as it did before. Yeah, so, so the original 737 series, when it came out, um, and we can put a picture up on the, on the show notes, it was, uh, it was a turbojet engine instead of a turbofan engine. So the engine on the original 737s are much more long, kind of cigar-shaped engines versus the, uh, versus the current engines that are on kind of the MAX series or, you know, other, other aircraft that you're used to seeing around. So the 737 does sit fairly low to the ground. And like Nicole mentioned, with having a larger engine um, and a much heavier engine, they had to change the landing gear stance quite a bit and just so they could get that required ground clearance. And if you look at the 737 MAX and also the NG series of 737 from the front, the engine nacelle is not rounded. It's, um, it's, I guess, flattened. It's a sphere that's flattened at the bottom. I don't know what shape that that is. Um, again, just to kind of get that required ground clearance that's there. Yeah, so the the landing gear was about 20 centimeters or about eight inches longer than the previous model, which doesn't sound like much, but it was enough to change the aerodynamics of the plane. And because it was longer, the landing gear and supporting structure had to be reinforced and the fuselage skins were thicker in some places, which added more weight. The planes also unrelated specifically to the engines, but interesting item I thought here. The planes have a split tip wing tip device, which means that the end of the wing kind of looks like a T, although most of it's aimed up and only a small segment's aimed down. This also was meant to improve fuel efficiency, maximize lift, and while also following a similar design to the previous 737s. The planes had recontoured tail cones, revised auxiliary power unit, inlet and exhaust, aft body vortex generators removed, and other small aerodynamic changes. So again, in order to accommodate the engine size and placement and all of these other adjustments that they made to the plane, Boeing added this MCAS software to correct the nose up movement and stabilize the plane during takeoff. And so the MCAS would lower the nose of the plane if the angle of attack sensors, which were located in the nose of the plane, detected that it was flying at too high of an angle. This on its own, while not necessarily the choice I would make, isn't an issue. I would probably try to redesign the plane, but I realized that probably wouldn't be my choice. Uh, it would be up to someone else. There's probably a bunch of management that are making these calls. 
But again, the, the flight stabilization software itself is not an issue. Like I mentioned, we've talked about this before. Um, we talked about it in FedEx Express Flight 80 in episode 59 and United 232 in episode 42. You know, using failures to explain why the software is okay is probably not an ideal example, but there are lots of other planes this with this type of software that are fine. It's, to me, the execution of this software that's the problem. So, Brian, why don't you tell us what they did wrong? Boeing, as I'm sure everyone is aware, is one of the largest aircraft manufacturers in the world. They represent about 40% of the total market um, for commercial uh, passenger aircraft. They do a whole bunch of military-related things as well. Either way, Boeing is is a huge player in, in the aerospace industry of things, and the aircraft manufacturing side of things. Like I said, pretty much everyone that's traveled has flown on a Boeing aircraft at, at some point. Boeing was the one that made the 747s. They really ushered in the jet age into, into America. So with that in mind, it's not really surprising that they would have a lot of familiarity with regulators and also some level of pull with regulators as, as much as you can sort of have. So the real problem starts when the Federal Aviation Administration, or the FAA, which is the U.S. department that determines airworthiness, or simply which airplanes can fly and which ones can't, they allowed Boeing to remove the MCAS system from their aircraft manual. So I don't think it was quite that simple, but that's kind of the gist of it. And ultimately, after what we assume is much discussion, Boeing is allowed to omit the MCAS from the plane's manual, which in hindsight, not, not ideal. It's a terrible idea. You're essentially selling a plane and none of the literature tells you anything about the MCAS. It's a terrible idea. I hate it. Which is not great. Like I, I realize that, you know, people get TVs and computers and cars and, and nobody reads a manual, but within aviation, you know, aircraft flight manuals and operating handbooks and, you know, documentation that comes with the aircraft, like this is a really important thing in, in aviation. And I feel everyone in aviation prides themselves a lot on knowing the ins and outs of their aircraft and all the systems and what goes into making those systems operate and run. Ground school for, you know, something like the Max 8, like it's, you know, it's going to be a six-week ground school course typically for how to fly the airplane. And these are for people that are coming from other aircraft that have, you know, thousands of hours, um, you know, even flying something something similar. So the omission of the MCAS system, I'm not a big fan of it. Nicole's not a big fan of it. I hate it. On top of that, as we noted at the top, and we've talked about a couple times up until this point, Boeing has packaged the 737 MAX as an upgraded model from a previous generation. So it's kind of similar to, you know, if you drive a Honda Civic and then you trade it in for a new Honda Civic LX or whatever the, you know, the sport model. So it, it's an upgrade on an existing, you know, kind of an upgrade on an existing car, if you want to, if you want to put it in those terms. So Boeing argued that the pilots who are already trained to fly a 737 did not need to take extensive training to fly the upgraded model. And this is fairly typical for, you know, airframes that, you know, share a lot of common characteristics. So, you know, for the Q400, um, the Dash at Q400, you know, a lot of a lot of the similarities, you know, apply back to the, you know, the 100 and the 200 and the 300 series of, of the Dash 8. So in this case, pilots were only given a two-hour online course for flying the Max series. And while this saved Boeing and their customers valuable time and money on training, the online course, it made no mention of the MCAS software. 
So when the 737 MAX took its first flight in 2017, a lot of pilots weren't completely aware of the system. And that's not all of the issues. So not only did they not tell anyone it existed, but the MCAS itself had a number of problems. First, it didn't require redundancy from the sensor inputs, meaning that it took the reading from one angle of attack sensor, even if that sensor's readout was inaccurate or if the sensor was faulty or there was something wrong with it, it took that readout as accurate and would make adjustments on the plane. Like we saw with the DC-10 in United 232, a lack of redundancy in critical systems is a real problem. We also saw a similar issue with Air France Flight 447 that I covered pre-Brian in episode 9, where the pitot tubes also didn't offer any redundancy, and so when they iced over, the plane didn't really know what to do, and it ended up crashing into the ocean. So on systems like this that are making critical changes to the plane, there needs to be some redundancy here, and I that seems really straightforward to me, and I don't know why this was overlooked. Second... The MCAS system, even if the pilots were able to figure out what it was and how to deactivate it, it would automatically re-engage over and over again. So the pilots weren't able to override the system or prevent it from activating in the first place. And so without a clear understanding of what the MCAS was doing and how, and no ability to turn it off, they couldn't really react appropriately. Unfortunately, catastrophic failure was imminent, and that's exactly what happened. And there were a number of significant crashes that happened, you know, to the 737 MAX 8. And, you know, unfortunately, both of these these crashes were, were close together. And really, both these crashes are the reason that we're, we're even covering this, covering this on failureology. So the first crash occurred on October 29th, 2018. This was Lion Air Flight 610 that crashed on its way from Jakarta to Pankal Pingang, Indonesia, killing all 189 people on board. So the plane, having been delivered to Lion Air only two months earlier, crashed into the Java Sea 13 minutes after takeoff from Jakarta. Lion Air released a full report on October 25, 2019, blaming the MCAS system for pushing the plane into a dive after receiving data from a faulty angle of attack sensor. There is some speculation that the day before the crash, a different crew piloting the plane had a similar issue, but the extra pilot sitting in the cockpit jump seat was somehow able to diagnose the problem and disable the MCAS system. So after this incident, Boeing has a chance to do the right thing here. They could fess up to the MCAS system issues, and this likely would have led to the second incident that we're going to talk about not occurring. Unfortunately, that's not the course of action that Boeing took. They doubled down on the fact that the 737 MAX series was fine and that there were no issues with the aircraft or its controls. They then issued an operational manual guidance bulletin talking about how to address errors in cockpit readings. The bulletins also included a checklist for pilots to follow in the event of a malfunction. And uh, I have some problems with this. Aside from the obvious ones that they didn't fess up to their mistake and correct it, this bulletin that they sent out doesn't address the root cause of the problem. 
and it still doesn't tell the pilots about the MCAS. And lastly, it puts all of the responsibilities back onto the pilots, saying you're the ones not doing it properly. You're the ones not making the right adjustments. You need to follow this checklist and make sure that your plane's set up properly when they're not even really trained well on this plane because they still don't know. They still haven't been formally told that the MCAS exists or how to operate it. I think some pilots are just getting lucky that they've seen it before or that they know how to disable different pieces of the software. But in general, the pilots still have not been trained. And so I have a really, I have a lot of problems with how this whole thing was handled. Unfortunately, like I mentioned, there is a second crash that occurs on March 10th, 2019. So less than five months after uh, the Lion Air crash. This crash involves Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302, and it crashes on its way from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia to Nairobi, Kenya, tragically killing 157 people on board this time. This plane, only four months old at the time, so basically brand new, also was in a dive at the time of the crash, similar to Lion Air 610, based on evidence retrieved at the crash site. So the cause of this, it was initially unclear, although the vertical speed after takeoff was reported as unstable. Grounding of the 737 MAX 8 fleet starts that day, March 10th, 2019. After the second crash, Boeing couldn't really hide any further, and they finally admitted that the MCAS played a role in both crashes. And there was a full investigation, and it showed that Boeing knew the MCAS was not only an issue, but that it was responsible for both crashes and that they didn't take action to prevent any future crashes. So their cover-up was finally exposed. And I don't know if any of you have seen the Boeing documentary on Netflix, but if I remember correctly, there were a bunch of internal emails circulating showing that... Some of the executives at Boeing knew the MCAS was the problem in the first line air crash and that they were continuing to try to cover it up. It's a really good documentary. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. The investigation also, unsurprisingly, found lapses in the Federal Aviation Administration or FAA's certification of the 737 MAX in the first place, specifically their approval for Boeing to remove the MCAS from the aircraft manual. Fun fact, there was a reassessment of the 737 MAX in February 2020 by the FAA and the European Union Aviation Safety Agency, and that reassessment determined that the stability and stall characteristics of the plane would have been acceptable with or without the MCAS. So not only was it poorly designed and poorly rolled out, it wasn't even required. It's just the icing on that cake. Boeing ultimately paid two and a half billion U.S. dollars, that's uh, with a B, billion U.S. dollars after being charged with fraud. The direct cost of the groundings is about $20 million, and the indirect cost, so things like loss of future aircraft sales, drop in stock prices, is around $60 million. When the 737 MAX went back into service in late 2020, it included sensor redundancy, requiring input from two angle of attack sensors, as well as a pilot override function in case the MCAS wasn't working properly. Both of these things probably should have been included in the original design, and we feel they're pretty straightforward things to have in a design. So as I mentioned, I covered this failure at a conference in Ireland in September, which was an amazing experience. And if any of you are listening, hello. Thank you for coming to my session, and hopefully we got to chat that day. 
it was so cool to meet everyone and nerd out about failure. Just as a quick side note, I believe this podcast is the 10th ranked podcast in Ireland in the science and physics category. So thank you all for making us a big thing, a top 10 in Ireland. Pretty exciting. So the basis of my session that day was talking about why different failures occur. And based on the almost 100 failures we've covered on this show between this is episode 63 of our regular episodes, but then we have about 30 episodes on our mini failure series. So we've, we've covered about 100 episodes. I've definitely noticed some patterns. Failures seem to either occur because of a couple of different things, either unknowns mistakes that are made. I mean, we're all human. It happens. And then some failures happen on purpose. And there, of course, are failures that are a combination of these things. But these are the main whys that I see. And this flight for my, for my session was an example of failures that happen on purpose. And so as frustrating as this story is, because it was so preventable and the solutions, at least to us looking back now, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, but the solutions are so obvious. I do think this is a really important story to tell because what happened to Boeing is the type of thing that happens when you think you're safe from failure. When you become complacent to your success, you think failure won't happen to you and you're just too big to fail. But guess what? Failure happens to everyone. Uh, so with that said, I do want to highlight some lessons learned from the 737 MAX. Cutting corners, of course, is never worth it. It's not a matter of if you get caught. To me, it's a matter of when. But either way, you're going to spend way more than you save in all the fines, penalties, compensation, and everything else that this type of failure costs. I mean, this failure costs Boeing $60 million. That's a lot of money. Not to mention the $2.5 billion they paid in fines. Secondly, proper training, especially on new technology, is really important. And that's even more important when you're dealing with the public in a life safety capacity, such as flying an airplane. I feel like, you know, airline travel is such a critical piece of infrastructure and it really needs to be done properly. And that's not a place to cut corners. And lastly, like I said, no one is safe from failure. The safer you think you are, the more at risk you likely are because you're just simply not looking for it. So there you have it. The Boeing 737 MAX series. Poorly designed flight stabilization software, lack of training, and the unwillingness of Boeing to admit their failure were to blame for the preventable deaths of almost 350 people. I would say this failure probably rocked the airline industry in a way that we haven't seen before, and I really hope that we don't see again. Same. Especially since a lot of the things that went wrong here are things that we've talked about in other airplane crashes before. Maybe not exactly like this, but there's definitely parts and pieces that we've talked about before that could have easily been rolled in to a solution for this plane to prevent this from happening. This one really grinds my gears. For photos, sources, and an episode summary from this week's episode, head to failureology.ca. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to Failurology so more people can find us. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failurology. You can email us at thefailurologypodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, or you can message us right on the Patreon page. Check out the show notes for links to all of these. Thanks everyone for listening and tune into the next episode where we'll talk about the Station Nightclub Fire in Rhode Island in 2003. Bye, everyone. Talk soon. <laughs>